You know, as we think on the Lord, as we magnify His name, we glorify Him, uh, as we exalt in who He is, um, the things of this world become much less, become much smaller to us. As He increases, um, we decrease. And that's what we need. We need Him to increase. I know that you came in this morning. Um, my guess is that something this week, um, perhaps even today, this morning, uh, maybe something ahead of you seems challenging, daunting. You don't know how you're going to face whatever uh, is ahead of you. As we remember who Christ is, we remember who He is, and He gets bigger, those things become, they take their rightful place, smaller, where they belong. And nothing in this world can outrun the love of God, the grace and mercy that Christ has for us. There's no trial, there's no temptation, there's no brokenness that His power, His hand cannot touch. And so we, um, we rely on that. And so I pray that um, every one of us in this room, that we would, the Lord would be magnified in our hearts. He would get bigger in our souls so that the, this world could kind of be put down to its appropriate place. Let's pray that that would be so. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to magnify your name, to exalt you, to put you where you belong, on the throne, not just of our lives, but of the world. You are great and mighty, God. Every raindrop, every molecule of every raindrop that fell on the earth today did so because you said it should. You are great and mighty. And so we praise you for that. And I pray that for these loved ones as they face the challenges of this broken world, all the things that this life can bring us. Lord Jesus, would you um, just magnify yourself in our hearts so that we can see you appropriately. We can, we can look at you and we can look at this world through, through the right lenses. Help us to grasp the just the temporariness, the, how small these things are. And I, and I know the, these things look big to us. We stand before the mountains at the base and we look up and we wonder how could we ever climb that hill. And yet your word promises us that you'll make all, you'll raise the valleys and you will lower the mountains and they all will become flat because that's what you say will happen. So help us to trust in that truth this morning, God. We need to trust that truth. So I pray that you would encourage us. God, I do pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. My flesh is weak. I am not able to do anything. But by the power of your spirit, God, would you teach us through your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this this place, this time that we can set aside to worship you. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. 
and uh, such a joy to be uh, with you this morning and to get to open up God's Word together. Um, as um, Marshall read for us, we are in a study in the book of Ephesians, and um, we're going to continue that this morning. If you haven't been with us, if this is your first time with us, I just want to point you out to our website, citychurchmelissa.com. You can go back, you can catch up uh, with, with us if you'd like. Um, also, just know that um, Ephesians, uh, it says here on the screen behind me, you say, it says uh, that subtitle that we may know and live, and the purpose of this book, if you are not familiar with the letter to the church in Ephesus, the first three chapters is uh, really just kind of giving us our identity, it's teaching us who we are in Christ, telling us, telling the church about our identity. And how many of us need to kind of get our identity reshaped so often we find uh, who we are and um, what we do, our jobs, our, uh, our roles as parents, moms and dads, as friends, and, and so many of the things that the world, you know, uh, that, that we engage in, uh, when, we, when we wrongly identify ourselves as that's who I am, uh, it becomes a problem. Um, some of you might think, well, you know, you're a pastor, and you might say to yourself, it'd be okay for me to have my identity as a pastor. I would be a worker pastor if I found my identity in being a pastor rather than my identity being in Christ and what he has done for me. And so there's no vocation, there's no role that I play, there's not being the husband that God has called me to be, the father that God has called me to be. All of those things are rooted in a right understanding of who I am because of Jesus. And so that's the first three chapters of this book Paul unfolds for us and reshapes and reminds us who we are because of Jesus. And so if you need that reminder, some of you might, you might need to reread those first three chapters every Monday morning before you head off to whatever the week has for you, just to, to kind of set that straight. By the way, that would take you a total of four minutes. Um, I, whatever your reading style is, not more than four minutes to read the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. And so, um, you can read that. And then as we've broken into chapter 4 over the last couple of weeks, we're now beginning to see this practical, okay, because of who I am, how am I supposed to live? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to engage in? What's life supposed to look like for me? And so that's where we are, as Marshall read for us, from verses 25 through 32 this morning. Now those words, verse 25, it begins with an interesting word. If you've been with us in men's Bible study, by the way, just a quick ploy, Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m., men, join us. Um, but that word, therefore, our men know that have been a part of that study, that reminds us and tells us where we're, what we're supposed to do, that we need to look back. Therefore means that there's something ahead of that in the text previously written that we need to look backwards to. Therefore, is Paul is saying, because of what I just said, and for us, because of what we taught on last week, if you were to go back and listen to that message, now here is what I want you to do. I want you to know these things. Paul has just told the Gentiles, the Gentiles of the church in Ephesus, that they're to no longer act like Gentiles. He says, you're not supposed to be who you once were. That's what he tells them. He says, your identity, who you thought you were as a Gentile, and the way that you lived your life, and all of the things that you engaged in, don't do those things anymore. Don't live as you once lived. That was what he said in the verses prior to verse 25. How are we to act differently? Well, these next verses, at least in some part, they, are, they might not be comprehensive. They, they give us the answer to that question. Now, if you were with us last week, 
You might remember that I pointed out that, again, he's telling Gentiles who are the, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus to not act like they once were. So he says, don't act like Gentiles do. And he's not saying that, saying they're, the Gentiles are someone else. He's saying that to Gentiles. And so for us, some of the times, I think we have a hard time in the uh, sort of American Christianity because we so rarely see this differentiation between our lives. See, the Gentiles of the church in Ephesus... They engaged in pagan worship and all sorts of things that were completely contrary to the Word of God. And then they came to faith in Christ, and their lives changed, and they began to worship Jesus, and their lives looked differently. And so Paul's writing this letter to them. He's saying, remember the way you used to act. Don't act like that again. Don't, don't keep doing those things. You need to remember that. But for so many of us, we have a hard time kind of reconciling that or making sense of that, because for us, because we've grown up in a somewhat Christian culture— Christianity is not foreign to our nation. So much of our country obviously founded in Christian principles. We hear about God. The name of Jesus is something that we hear often and, and, and very many of us from early on in our lives. And so it's not easy as, as easy for us to differentiate what our lives should look like or how they look differently from way, the way they were. But God's word is true. He says that he takes out the heart of stone. When we come to faith in Christ, he says he takes out the heart of stone and he gives us a new heart of flesh. He says that we're made new. There is this transformation that takes place. And this transformation should cause us to look and live differently. And for us, church, this is a high calling. If we're ever going to have the witness that we'd like to have with our friends and neighbors... How many of us, as we watch the news, as we just sit and we listen to all the things that are coming out of the television or even just down the street, as we hear about things that are happening in our schools, with our kids, with our families, how many of us think to ourselves, oh my, this place is a disaster. Things are a complete mess. We say to ourselves, those people are crazy. Whoever those people are. And for all of us, there's different those people. Some of it's those people down the street, some of it's those people on the news, some of it's those people, whatever it might look like, how are we to correct that? What, what will ever lead, how, how will we see something changed? The way that change happens is that we live our lives according to the identity of who we are in Christ, and we call others to that, and we do that so radically that we look different to the world. Then the world sees us. They say, you don't live, you don't operate, you don't communicate, you don't, you don't, you're not the neighbor like everybody else. You're not the coworker, the friend, you're not the husband, you're not the father, you're not the, the wife, the mother, the aunt, the uncle, none of those things. You're completely different. You live differently. That's what we are to, to do. Well, if we struggle to understand how that's supposed to look, these verses gave the, the, the church in Ephesus and give us a reminder of what this should look like or how it's supposed to look differently. That we're not supposed to live like we once did. And that's the text that we have before us in verses 25 and following. Therefore, because I have said, don't live like you once lived, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The first thing that we don't do any longer as Christians, we don't lie. We're called to not lie. Lying has become so pervasive in our culture. 
It starts with those little white lies, things that we think we can get away with. I'll just say this, just kind of smooth things over. And then it turns to bigger and bigger lies. And we need to understand, where do lies, where does lying, the act of lying, begin? If I were to ask you to raise your hand, have you lied? We would, we would all have to raise our hand at some point. Why? What prompts us to lie? It starts with a discontent. We're not satisfied with what God has given us or said to us. And the enemy takes that little, just slight little opening of discontentedness. And it turns us against God and then against one another and ultimately ourselves. Think about the first lie in Scripture. Did God really say, Satan, as he's beginning to tempt Eve and Adam? He asked them a question. He begins to lie to them. And their discontentedness, they weren't satisfied with walking in the garden, having complete and perfect union with God. And because of that brokenness in their heart, they were tempted to sin. They fell, bringing sin into the world. And so many of us, the reason that we lie is because we think that if I say this, if I just sort of smooth this over and kind of act as if this is okay, if I tell this little lie, that will give me some sort of win, some sort of victory, some sort of favor with somebody. Whether it's a personal situation, whether it's a, a, an employment, a work situation, whether it's a friend, whether it's in our spouse, spousal relationship as husbands and wives, we're not satisfied with who God or what God has given us and what He said. We think, I want that. And the lie that we hear, well, God doesn't want me to have that. And so because He doesn't want me to have that, I'll just kind of say this, I'll, I'll speak this little lie. No one will know. And why does Paul say that we aren't supposed to lie? Now, the obvious answer to that question of why we shouldn't lie is that it's obviously a sin against God. We're not supposed to sin. And so we should, lying is a sin against God. But what Paul says here, he gets more specific in his answer as to why we are not to lie. Having, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Because we are united. Because we are one. See, he points out that lying is not just a sin against God. It is very much that. But it is a sin against Christ, his body. In our men's Bible study, once again, we're studying through the book of Acts along with our, our ladies' uh, Bible study as well. And we talked about this last Tuesday that, that we love the church because it's Christ's body. The reason that we, have, that we are called to love the church, not just city church, but love the corporate big C church, is because the church is the body of Christ. And when we lie, we do damage to Christ's body. We do damage to the church. Lying does harm to our body. We need to realize that we are members of one another. That's what the church is. And so when we lie, when we have falsehood, when the truth is not what we speak, it does tremendous harm. So the first thing that Paul points out when he's talking about the way that they once lived, con contrasted to the way that they now live as new creations, transformed beings, is that they speak the truth. 
that lying is not part of their practice. Is that the way that we live? This should be a contrast that we hold up in our own hearts and minds. Do I speak the truth? Or do I struggle with the sin of lying? Do I have a hard time being truthful and honest? Being open with the body of Christ? He continues, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see right there that he mentions giving no opportunity to the devil. We know the truth of Scripture tells us that our enemy, Satan, is sitting and waiting. He comes to kill and destroy. He seeks us out. He looks for every opportunity. The reason that we talked about a few weeks ago that we have to be killing sin or it will be killing us is because Satan lies in wait. He's waiting. He's looking for any little opening that he can use. Any temptation of your heart, any discontentedness with who God is and what he's given you, a little sliver so that he can come in and destroy. But he says, be angry and do not sin. Now that sounds sometimes confusing because Jesus said that if we are angry, then that means that we, usually that means we hate our brother. That's the same as murder when he talks about the Ten Commandments, that we're not to be angry with one another. But here Paul, he gives this qualifier. He says, be angry, but do not sin. So the words indicate that there is some, ty- some type or, or, or form of anger that would not be sinful. We know that we're created in the image of God. And so as image bearers, as people created in his image, there is parts of us that, that we reflect God. So as the world looks around us, and I know that's a daunting task. I, look, I wake up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror as I'm brushing my teeth, shaving. I'm like, man, phew, image bearers having some tough work today. And uh, I don't feel that great today. I'm, I'm really struggling. But each and every one of us are image bearers. We bear the image of God. And so as we go out into the world, we, we're called that we reflect a little bit of God's character to the world around us, attributes that he has. And so we know, as image, we know that God was angry. There's times when he gets angry. There is a righteous anger. Anger at the wrong types of Attitudes. There's this societal anger that we are frustrated with the level of brokenness that we see in the world. We can be angry. We can be frustrated that abortion is pervasive in our country and seems to be celebrated every day of the week. That's an anger that we can have that's a righteous anger. But he says that we are to be angry and do not sin. See, the anger that we have, how we test that is does it lead us to sin. There is an anger, there's a righteous anger at sort of an indignation at the way things are. So often when I read stories of just, again, any sort of brokenness and hardships, I think, Lord, very often, you might even see me if you follow me on social media, when those things happen, one of the common statements I'll use is, Lord, come quickly. I'm angry that this world is broken. I know that Jesus is the only one that will fix it and will clean it up and will make all things new. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm tired of having to hear about this. I'm tired of having to read about these types of things happening in our world. I'm angry about it. But don't don't allow it to lead to sin. We have to be careful that it doesn't tempt us. And what does anger often do? It does just that. It tempts us to lie about someone. 
He just taught, he just said, don't lie. It tempts us to do harm to someone. And I'm not just speaking physically, I'm thinking in, in verbal or emotional or any of those types of things. We can be angry at these situations, sort of the brokenness of the world, but he's talking here specifically, he says, don't allow that anger to lead to sinfulness. Anger boils up inside of us. If we don't properly address anger, it will boil up in us, and pride and selfishness and lies all spew out in response. Think about the last time that you were angry about something. And like me, you were angry about something and you, you allowed it to lead you into sin. More than likely, what came out in response to that anger was pride, selfishness, lies about something or someone, all sorts of frustration spewed out. One pastor, in speaking of anger, he said this, and I love this summary. I want you to listen closely. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is po possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. Speaking of anger. But the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When we allow anger to boil up in us and that to be a part of how we live, anger at people, angry at every situation, we begin to think about other people in the wrong way. Our hearts are led to sin where we begin to hate those individuals or the circumstances or the situation, and we think about that retribution and all those sorts of things. And all of the while, what he's saying here is we're killing ourselves. We're chewing on our own bodies. We're sitting in anger, gnawing on our own souls. So what are we to do when we have that anger to prevent it from turning to sin? Here's what we do. We don't give it time to lead us astray. What does he say? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He puts a time frame around it. He says, don't allow anger to fester, to boil up in you, to build, to, to, to be thinking about, upon it day after day after day. We're to deal with it swiftly. I'm sure you've heard this practice commended to you in marriage, that you're not to allow the anger, not, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you ever did any premarital counseling or you've had any conversations about marriage that often coach us up in that, that way, say, hey, be sure and deal with it. But we need to be dealing with that in all of our relationships. Going back, we don't lie, we speak the truth. And when there's something that causes us to be angry, the first thing we do is we check and we understand, is this just a selfish, prideful thing? Or is there something legitimate about this anger? There's something that is truly a wrong that has been done that needs to be dealt with? And we go and we deal with it. We deal with it then. Again, these are new people, and what Paul is trying to instruct the church in is how to live a life that is a witness to the outside world that looks different. That's not what our friends who do not know Jesus do. 
That's not what it looks like. How do you, the way that we lead our lives, just in relationship with other people and the way that we deal with anger, does it reflect the gospel? Does it reflect that your heart has been transformed by Christ? Or do you deal with anger and all of the situations of the world in the same way that your non-believing friends do? That should challenge us. That should cause us to think differently, to consider for a moment. Are are we handling these things in the right way? Because the witness of the church is what is at stake. We don't allow that anger to turn to sin. We go and we deal with it. Because we know that we cannot, as verse 27 says, give any opportunity to the devil. The devil wants to destroy you, friends. He wants to destroy your lives He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to destroy everything that is good in your life. He has nothing but destruction waiting for you. But guess what? He's cunning. He doesn't just destroy and tear it down. He leads us to a life of complacency. He leads us to think that we don't have to worry about how we look to the world that we don't have to consider these things. He lulls us to sleep. Paul continues. Again, practical ways of living the Christian life. Then verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, lying, anger, theft, These things, they sound very simple to us, but we're called to live a life where we work for what we earn, and we do that with a purpose so that we might be generous with what God has entrusted to us, that we might share with anyone who has a need. The thief, what does the thief have to share? Nothing, because he stole what he had just enough so that he could have it for himself. He has no interest in anyone else. The heart behind that is clear. It's not so that we can serve anyone. I would somewhat laugh at this, but you know, we all love the movie Robin Hood. Why do we like that? We think, well, there's some, there's some good in, in theft. We're robbing the, the wealthy to go distribute. That's not the way it works in the world. We all know the real world. We steal. Thieves steal so they can have for themselves. Rooted in selfishness. Rooted in pride that I deserve better than what I've had. And I know you're thinking, well, I haven't stolen anything lately. Great. Work hard. Do your very best. Earn the wage that you are called to earn so that you can then live generously and receive from the Lord and share with anyone who has a need. For us in this day, this looks more like cutting corners. I know I'm supposed to Stay till 5, but I'll leave at 4.30. I know I'm supposed to not do this or that, but no one will notice. I know that I'm supposed to fill in the blank. And we begin to think to ourselves, the enemy begins to whisper in our ear, no one really cares, does it really matter? We're about to enter into tax season. And I know y'all are thinking, what is he talking about today? Christians don't cheat on their taxes. Simple things. Again, how does the world see us? Do they see 
the deeply spiritual things that we do as we gather tonight in prayer at 5 o'clock, most of the world will be oblivious to that going on. Your coworkers tomorrow will know how you live your life. Are you angry? Do you lie? Do you cheat at your job? Do you cut corners? Do you look for the easiest way out in anything? They'll know that. That's a testimony to those people. The church, the body of Christ, is at stake. We need to rightly think of these things. So he says, work and earn so that you might share. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I'm tempted to not even say anything about that, but to just read that line 20 times in a row. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only words that would build up to display the grace of God and His mercy to the world around us. Brothers and sisters, this line, this is one of the hardest for us to live out. And as I look around our culture, do you want to know why I believe our culture is such a downward spiral? Because this is essentially the only way that we do communicate any longer, with corrupting talk, failing to give grace and mercy and to build one another up. If we could eliminate that problem, there are so many problems that I would just say exist in our community, in our world, in our church family, and beyond that would be completely eliminated if we could take this word to heart. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Students, this is one of the hardest things for you to live out. You're raised in a culture that tells you to compare yourself to one another, and if you find yourself a little bit lower on the totem pole than you think that you should be, to beat that other person up with words and to tear them down to try and bring them to your level. And students learn those things, by the way, from moms and dads who do the same. When we see someone who has something that we don't have, we think, I need to tear them down to bring them to my level. We love, misery loves company. We love to commiserate. Christians, those of us who have been transformed, who've been given new hearts, and don't look at the world any longer as just ours with pride and selfishness, and realize everything that we've been given is a gift of God's grace, we build one another up. We celebrate the victories of others. When people are having a hard time, we don't come alongside them to tear them down. We build them up, lift them up with grace. But only, the only words that should come out of your mouth are for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. That line, I want us to memorize that line, church. I want to challenge each and every person here to this week, take it upon yourself to be hyperly aware of how critical we have become, how corrupting we have become with our words. Our student ministry is studying the book of James, and they talked a couple weeks ago about the tongue is the rudder 
of the ship. That little tiny member can destroy the whole thing, can turn the whole ship. Be aware of your words and let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Unholy words, words of tearing down, ill of one another, lies, slander, all of those things. But only allow words to come out of your mouth that would build someone up. Imagine what our community would look like if everywhere this room went, every single one of us, everywhere we went, we found some way to say, I'm going to build you up. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to encourage you. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, tweeted this last week. He said, you will not meet anyone today that is um, struggling from (laughs) over-encouragement. You won't meet anyone that doesn't need a little bit of encouragement, that won't be lifted up. But as we display the grace of Christ, as we take and we use use these rudders for good and to bring glory to God and to point to Him, we build up. And also within this body, we build one another up. Corrupting talk is such a scheme of the enemy. We have to be aware of it, friends. Be vigilant to allow nothing to come out of our mouths. And here's why in verse 30. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You know why all of these things that I just shared, Paul has said to the church, that he's felt the need to deal with them, and why they're so critical? is because we don't rightly understand the grief that we bring to God himself, God the Spirit, when we live lives contrary to who we've been called to be. Grieving the Holy Spirit. What he means here is that all of these things bring harm, hurt him. He's a person. Some of us struggle to understand the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are three persons. And so we, because we don't have a really good understanding of the Holy Spirit, we sometimes just don't really think much of him. We think of God the Father, we think of God the Son, but God the Spirit is who is with us. God the Spirit is who indwells us. God the Spirit is who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, praying and giving us the words to pray tonight when we don't know how to pray for the need that we have. It's the Spirit that will inform that. God the Spirit is our helper. And as we engage in all of these things that we've just been called to not do, to not be a part of our lives, to not allow, to mark us, we grieve the Spirit. How many of us as kids, we knew, I can't do that. If I do that, mom and dad are going to be mad. I'm going to get in big trouble. That's going to lead to something bad. How many of us, maybe as adults, now I can't do that. If I do that, Laurel's going to have a fit. It's not going to go well for me. You don't have a Laurel, but you got somebody. And we think, we think of another human being, and we decide, like we course correct, we think to ourselves, I don't want to do that because that's going to offend, hurt, break them, whatever the situation might be. I don't want to find myself in trouble. Students, how many of you know that if you do certain things, you're getting called to the principal's office? Just one of those things. I used to be scared of getting called to the principal's office. I got licks once. Didn't want to have to happen again. But when we think of God the Spirit, 
We do whatever we want, completely unaware of the grief that we are bringing to God. God Almighty. And this calling to not be people who lie, to be people who don't steal, who work hard for their wage, this calling to not allow corrupting talk to come out of our mouths, but to build one another, all of those things is what brings joy to the Spirit and causes the Spirit to smile upon us. And we don't think of every interaction that we have, every opportunity as we meet someone else, as we encourage one another as the church, we don't recognize that the Spirit of God is with us, dwelling in us. And it's Him who we grieve or we bring joy to. And I don't know about you, but Holy Spirit, who has sealed me and will hold me fast until the day when Jesus does come and I am fully redeemed, I don't want to upset Him. I don't want to grieve Him. I don't want to break his heart. He is the greatest gift I've ever received. No amount of love, encouragement, mercy could ever outweigh the Holy Spirit, what he has done for me. And so it's out of a heart of worship that I want to try and lead a life that honors him not grieving him. In verses 31 and through 32, he summarizes, Paul summarizes for us all that he's just said. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander to be put away from you along with all malice. And conversely, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we need to remember who we are. Now, I know if you're new with us and you weren't with us last week especially, or maybe if you weren't paying close attention today, you might think, if you don't know Jesus, that what I've just taught you, what we've just looked at from this text, would say, oh yeah, this sounds like every other religious thing I've heard. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know what? That's how you can be right with God. But that's not what I said. See, none of these things, this, this letter is written to the church, to the believers, those of us who, therefore, because you have been made new, because you've been given new hearts, because of God's grace and mercy in your life, you live differently. This list of things that I've just shared, this is not some legalistic way to earn God's favor. No, we've received from Christ. We've received his mercy already. This is written to the church. And so all these things that we've been called to do is a response to our love for Christ. And when we rightly think of Jesus, look at verse 32 again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All of those things that I just said are who God called me not to be, that's who I once was. I was a liar. I was a cheater. I cut corners. I looked out for my own way. I was selfish. I was filled with pride. All of those things. But God, being rich in mercy, 
poured out his love for me. As Jesus went to the cross to take the right punishment that was due to me. And so when I remember the forgiveness that I have in Christ, the mercy and the grace that I've received in Christ, how can I not be tender-hearted towards others? How can I not so quickly forgive others? How can I not be kind? I have received so much from Christ. I should overflow with these things. But here's the reality. The enemy whispers in our ear, and we're tempted to become bitter, anger, to slander others. But that's not who we're called to be, church. If we want to have the testimony that we desire to have, if we want to see change brought into the world, change to come about, if we want to see this culture stop the sliding back, imagine just for a moment, let it start with us. Say that there is no longer at all in my life going to be anything corrupting to come out of my mouth. Anger is no longer going to be a practice. I'm going to shut these things down. And yes, we have to work at that. We have to be diligent about that. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have to fight against it every day of my life. I have to get up and I have to remember who Christ is. And I have to say, I'm going to be diligent. And I have to catch myself. Oh, I sense anger. I sense some slanderous talk coming. I sense frustration building up in my heart. And I know that very quickly the enemy is going to say, you can just say that. No one else is going to really care. Not too many people are going to hear that. Don't write it on Facebook, but you can say it. No. Let nothing of that be who we are. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word, word that is deeply convicting to my soul. Reminds me of how often I allow my flesh to win. How often I struggle. And Holy Spirit, I, I just pray that we could all in this moment just repent of the grief that we have brought to you through lies, anger, unholiness, unwholesome speech. All of those things were hurtful to more than likely someone else in our lives, but most of all, we acknowledge God, that we sinned against you. We have grieved you. I pray that we could just in this moment repent of that sin. Confess it to God. He says that if we confess our sins, that you will be faithful to forgive us. Those things will become as far as the east is from the west. 
completely forgotten. What, a, what an amazing truth that is, that we can in this moment acknowledge that we have grieved you, and yet in the very next moment as we confess that, as we repent of that, we, we ask for your help to turn away from that, we can know that we have been forgiven. That's the grace that we have received. We confess and we repent. And we thank you, Jesus, that we can be forgiven. We do pray now, Holy Spirit, would you help us to be people who are marked by just your power. I pray that this church would be known, not our name, but the people of this church, we would be known as the most encouraging, kind, generous, gracious, loving, hospitable, holy people. Not so that we can receive a pat on the back or we can, anything can happen for us, Lord, but that you might be glorified through us the people who are far off from you. Right now, there are people in our community, dear friends, loved ones, who are far from you and don't know you. And I know, Lord, that you will use the character of your people, our holiness, to show yourself to them, to be a display. Lord, I pray that this church, we would be confounding to others. They would look at us and be like, those people are weird. They're way too nice. I don't ever hear them talk bad about anyone. I don't hear them tear down the world around them. I don't see negativity on their social media pages. All I see from them is love and encouragement and holiness. What a miracle that would be, God, if you would allow that, if your spirit would move over us and just compel us to that. So I pray, Lord, that we would remember your mercy. I know how far off I was from you. There's nothing I did to earn your favor, God. You were kind to me. You were generous to me. So help me to respond, to worship you with the way I live my life as I live those same things out. We love you, Jesus. Help us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.